It's very lovely to see you all here. My name is Neil. I lead this church with my wonderful wife, Kate. We're going to start a series this morning. It's a series I think is on the Lord's uh, heart for us to look at. And we're going to be looking at the book of Nehemiah. Yes. So uh, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. Absolutely. Thumbs up for Nehemiah. And um, uh, if you don't know where to find it, look it up in the index or use your phone. And whilst the book of Nehemiah may not be familiar to some of you, we're going to be looking at it. We're going to be looking at it over the next few weeks. And really what it is that it was that God called him to. What it was that he felt that God called him to. And how this story that's actually two and a half thousand years old is, we believe, as we've been thinking about it and praying about it, a word from the Lord to us here as a church uh, today. Before we kind of get into it, I wanted to give you a bit of an overview by way of an introduction uh, for many of us, most of us, as we look back over the events of the, the many and varied events of 2016. One of the, one of the, the key images that's kind of, you know, sort of embedded and imprinted into our minds, one of the sad realities that we faced, uh, we were faced with once again, were the, the plight of thousands of refugees. Thousands of refugees fleeing violence, forced from their homes, and traveling wherever they could, essentially seeking peace in other nations. And so we had these horrific scenes of hordes of refugees in makeshift camps, crossing uh, borders. And all of that became all too familiar. And in not too dissimilar a vein, this uh, story that we're going to be looking at, this, this series that we're going to be doing over the next few weeks uh, together, tells something of a similar story. In as much as it tells of a people who were displaced by violence, of people who were displaced by war, they were marched like a thousand miles across the desert uh, to a foreign land. They were taken into exile. Uh, they lived in exile for over a hundred years and it was like a, a people movement on a mass scale. It was provoked by violence. It was against their will. And all of it happened like 580 years before the birth of Christ. And it's, it's interesting how similar humanity is two and a half thousand years later. We're facing still some of exactly the same issues that people were facing two and a half thousand years ago. As we look, at the, we look at God's call to Nehemiah, what he's doing is he's, he, he's, he feels called to work, to rebuild, to restore the walls of Jerusalem. And as we look at that, our, our hope and our prayer is that as a church, we might be freshly inspired. Our hope and our prayer is that the Spirit of God would freshly encourage us uh, and, in, and, and anoint us and empower us and equip us that we might believe that God actually is calling us to... Um, uh, in our generation, to, um, to build his church, to build his city, if you like the analogy, not only here uh, in southwest London, but across the nation and to the very ends of the earth. Our, our heart and our prayer and our hope is uh, that as we together dig into this uh, book, is that we might once again uh, see the ways in which God has called each one of us uh, to make a difference as we proclaim the good news 
of Jesus as we proclaim and declare that God is alive, that Jesus is alive and well, that God has come um, and he is wanting to bring his blessing. He's wanting to extend his blessing. He's wanting to, out of the abundance of his goodness and grace and glory, he's wanting to lavish his blessing on every single person that we encounter so that his kingdom rule and reign is established uh, throughout the world. So, if you're sitting comfortably, um, then I'll begin. Anyone under the age of 50 won't have a clue what I just said. Um, when, um, so Babylon's, uh, Babylon's armies under King Nebuchadnezzar, they, they left Jerusalem, it was 586 BC, and when they left Jerusalem, they literally left the city completely desolate uh, behind them. The, the magnificent temple that had been built by Solomon some 400 years uh, before that was reduced to rubble. The, the city gates and all of the city's buildings were engulfed in flames. The, the city walls were completely uh, destroyed. They were completely demolished. And, and they were really demolished just to make sure that uh, the very few people that were allowed to remain in Jerusalem, and that was really only the very poorest of the poor, and that was re- they, the walls were demolished just to ensure that there was never, ever a revolt or rebellion against the king ever again. And so that, uh, to, to ensure that there was no rebellion, they just kind of smashed everything down. It was only the poorest of the poor that were allowed to stay in Jerusalem. Um, uh, there, was a hum- there was a terrible, terrible massacre. Uh, thousands of people were killed. And the rest, the ones that were allowed to stay alive, including the king, were... Um, were forced out of Jerusalem, and they were forced to march the thousand miles across the desert to uh, this distant foreign land, Babylon. And uh, according to historians who talk of the events, that apparently the suffering that people experienced, the cruelty that was perpetuated to people, the massacre, uh, the scale of the massacre was beyond description. And here they are, the people of Jerusalem, they're marching out across the desert to Babylon and um, walking alongside them is their king. Their king's been blinded. Um, he's, uh, he's, um, he's shackled. Uh, he's um, humiliated. Uh, and he's now walking alongside his people, no longer ahead of them, um, just as one of them. He's no longer a king. He's, he's just humiliated and reduced to nothing. He's, he's really now just a sort of refugee and a slave. And so um, the people of Jerusalem, they're, they're leaderless, uh, they're, they're, they're powerless, and to all intents and purposes, they're, they're hopeless. You can read all about it, 2 Kings 25 um, tells the story. And yet in the midst of every um, generation, God, rises, God raises up leaders. He, ra- he raises up uh, people to face these fresh challenges that, his, um, that are confronting his people, and so it's now like 140 years after those events of the, uh, the siege of Jerusalem, of Jerusalem being raised and, um, and captured. And it's 140 years later. And this chap, Nehemiah, he's, he's uh, Israelite uh, origin heritage. Uh, and by now, following the fall of the Babylonians, he's actually working in service, uh, in, he's in working in royal service to the Persian uh, king. And he hears these stories and these tales about the sorry, the sad and sorry state of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, you know, he's kind of heard over the years about how um, groups of people, you know, an earlier group of people had gone back to Jerusalem and, and they'd made the journey home and they were wanting to sort of get a restoration program going and a rebuilding project going. 
But the king had absolutely sort of quashed that, and that wasn't going to happen. Um, Nehemiah knew that Ezra had taken a group of people back and that they'd gone back to Jerusalem and that Ezra was trying to remind and encourage and instill in the people who were still left in, um, in Jerusalem of the importance and the centrality of the word of God. But that had been, like, that had been hard work too. And so uh, God is now calling Nehemiah, and it's like he's highlighting Nehemiah, he's calling to Nehemiah and he's saying, okay, it's, um, it's time, it's your time. Are you going to be my next man? Are you going to be my guy who's going to count the cost and go back to Jerusalem? Okay? So with all of that in mind, should we have a look? Have a look at Nehemiah. I can't see without my glasses. Um, Nehemiah, uh, if you're in the Psalms, you've gone too far. If you're, uh, you kind of hit Ezra. And after that, you're in Nehemiah. Okay? Words should sort of come up on the screen. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of hard word. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. We'll come back to that in a minute. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures. Uh, We ask that by your Holy Spirit that you would inspire us and challenge us. You would anoint us. You would equip us. You would empower us. um, That we may be spurred on to uh, co-labor with Christ, to restore and to rebuild Uh, the walls, Lord, that um, we might see your kingdom flourish, your kingdom come, and the name of Jesus lifted high. So here's Nehemiah, some 140 years after the destruction of the city and the the exile, and and Nehemiah's kind of doing pretty well for himself, Uh, actually. He's he's pretty comfortable. Uh, He's working um, in service to the Persian king, and, and, and yet... Despite all of that, despite the fact that this was so long ago and he's actually quite comfortable, for some reason he's like deeply troubled. He's, he's deeply troubled by everything that has happened in Jerusalem and, 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 the, and the fact that the city is still in the same state. It bothers him. And he's, he's so troubled by the devastation and the havoc and the destruction that was wreaked back then, you know, 140 years before. He's so bothered by the fact that that hasn't been fixed, that hasn't been resolved, that hasn't changed. Nothing's changed. And it it causes him to come before God in this, literally in this real state of mourning. He's he's grieved about it. And he cries out to God and he's weeping before God day and night. For Nehemiah, this whole thing really matters. Uh, It really matters to Nehemiah that God's city, that God's uh, people had been um, destroyed, they'd been dispersed, they're all in disarray, they're disheartened, and nothing's changing. It matters to him that um, it's been like that for kind of decade after decade after decade. And it, it's almost like he just wants to hear some good news. He's asking people, what's, what's the news? What's the news from Jerusalem? And he's like, oh, no, it's still the same. It's like he wants to hear good news. He wants to hear that God is on the move. He wants to hear that God is uh, restoring the city, that the city is being rebuilt. The walls are being restored. He wants to hear that God's name is being uh, is worshipped again, that God's name is being lifted high, not only in Jerusalem, but 
to the ends of the very earth, to the, all nations around it would be blessed. And so he bumps into some of his Jewish friends, and he, as they're traveling through the city, it's kind of probably one of the most opulent parts of the Persian Empire, this citadel called Susa, which is where the Book of Esther uh, is, is set. And he, he basically says to them, he says, you know, what's the news? Give me the news. Give me the news from Jerusalem. What news? And all they can tell him is, well, you know, it's, it's, oh, it's in a wrong state. It's just as broken and as kind of derelict and devastated as ever. It's a, it's a, it's a sad tale. And for Nehemiah, this troubles him deeply. and it's, um, it, it troubles him that something that was established for the glory of God, something that was designed to bear witness to the world about the nature of God and the, and the goodness and the grace of God. It was supposed to demonstrate God's greatness and his goodness and his faithfulness and uh, his kindness. It was, it was all lying now, just lying in, in, in ruins. And it troubles him deeply in his spirit. And it's interesting what he does. Because as we're just going to discover, Nehemiah actually had it pretty good. Um, he was doing well for himself. He's in service to the king, which is a, actually a pretty good job if you can get it. Uh, he's one of those guys who's right at the heart and the hub of the royal court. Uh, he would have had a, a, a very comfortable life. Uh, he would have been treated very well. He'd have had the finest foods, drunk the finest wine. Um, kind of living the high life, really. And yet, in spite of all his pr- privilege and position, he's deeply troubled by what's going on and what he hears about Jerusalem. Place he's never been to, place he's never even seen for himself. And what he does, some of us might think is slightly unusual, because what he does first is he immediately turns to prayer. He immediately prays. Nehemiah prays. He doesn't kind of get political, he doesn't get practical. Nehemiah just gets on his face before the Lord and he prays. And for Nehemiah, this seems like the most natural and instinctive thing to do. Like he was grieved about what was happening in God's city. And it's like, what am I going to do about it? I know, I'm going to pray. Of course, what else would I do? I'm going to pray. I'm going to come to God in prayer. In his working life, he's surrounded by palace officials whose chief end was to please the king. For Nehemiah, this demonstrates that actually, in spite of all of that, his primary objective in life was to bring pleasure to God, to please God in all that he did. And um, they're the things that we find out about Nehemiah as soon as we start reading about his prayer life in uh, chapter 1. We're just going to go through this prayer that he prays. And the first thing that he does in his prayer is he remembers who God is. He remembers who God is. Have a look at verse 5. and It says this, Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. It's a great way to kick off a prayer. God, you are good. God, you are great. God, you are faithful. God, you remember your promises. That's what he's doing. That's how he kicks off this prayer. And what that means is it means that Nehemiah knows that God is not going to leave Jerusalem in the condition that she's in. He's not going to leave Jerusalem in the state that she's in. He's, he's saying, God, I am coming to you. God, I am calling out to you. God, I am crying out to you. Will you, God, remember in your great mercy the promises that you spoke over your city and your people? You have promised, O oh God, that you would keep your covenant of love to those who love you and keep your commandments. So, God, let your ear 
be attentive. Let your eyes be open to hear the prayer that your servant is praying before you night and day for your servants, the people of Israel. And he, he remembers who God is. And as we, as a church, come together at the beginning of this year and we're talking about the importance of us praying as a church, that's not a bad reminder for us as we cry out to God this coming year. The second thing is that he remembers who we are. Have a look at verse 6. He says this. The rest of verse 6 says, I confess. I confess the sin that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Do you see how he, when he's praying, do you see how he, when he's talking, he doesn't talk about them, but he talks about us. Do you see how he doesn't say, you know, like their sin, their sin over there, bad people. He says, our sin. He doesn't say, um, you know, they have acted wickedly. He says, we have acted wickedly. Have you noticed how many times when things get really tough, how we've got a tendency to shift our language? To shift our language from us to them. You know, from, from we to you. Somewhere along the line. It's like Nehemiah saying, somewhere along the line, despite all that you've done for us, O oh Lord, all the great things that you have done for us, somewhere along the line, we've forgotten who we are. It's like in spite of everything that you've done, or we've forgotten um, where we've come from. It's like, God, in spite of all that you've done for us, it's like forgotten what we've been called to. We've, we've forgotten where we're going. Somewhere along the line, living as strangers in a strange land, somewhere along the line, we become more Persian than Jewish. And uh, again, I think that's a sobering reminder for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, two and a half thousand years later, that like the Israelites in exile, we too are aliens passing through. We are strangers in a strange land. And sometimes we need to remember that and remind ourselves and remind each other that actually, you know, the values of the culture and the society in which we find ourselves temporarily living may not actually be the same values of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God to which we truly belong. We looked at that when we were looking at Philippians. And here's Nathaniel, Nathaniel, Nehemiah, that's our son, Nehemiah saying, sorry, (laughs) Yeah, it's Nathaniel. Um, it's his, Nehemiah saying sorry uh, for letting it all go. In the story that Jesus tells of the prodigal son, the, the whole moment of reconciliation uh, happens when the son comes to the realization he's out flipping, feeding you know, pigs and eating with the pigs. He's like in the sty. And he comes to this realization. It's like, what the heck am I doing? I'm going to go home to my father. I'm going to go back. And I'm going to confess my sin to my father. That's the realization. And he's on his way home. And he's, it's like you can imagine him. He's on his way back to his father's house. And he's kind of going, oh, no, I'm going back to my father. I'm going back to my dad. And I've got to confess to him all my sin. And I've really stuffed up. And I don't know how I'm going to say this. And it's like, what can I say? So, like, hi, dad. Uh, you know, that inheritance you gave me. Well, oh, you know, actually, you were right. It wasn't such a great idea after all. And kind of like... He's on his way home, and it's like he's imagining what he's going to say to his father. And the thing that he decides to land up on, he's going to end up saying to his father, is 
against you and you only have I sinned and done what is wrong in the sight of God. Against you and you only have I sinned. You see, without God in our lives, we end up, we, we just mess it all up. We, we get everything so upside down and so back to front. It's so easy to get it upside down and back to front when we don't have God in our lives. And the first step in putting things right, in getting things back into the correct order, begins with confession. Absolutely, it begins with confession. It begins with our confession to our Heavenly Father, saying that against you, O Lord, and you only have I sinned. We need to remember who God is. We need to remember who we are. The third thing that Nehemiah does is he remembers God's words. Have a look at verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. This is a great bit of the prayer. Um, he's almost obligating God with God's own promises. Yeah? Uh, and so he says, you, God, promised that if we return to you and if we obey your commands, you have promised that even if your exiled people are at the farthest ends of the, you know, the farthest bit of the corner of the world, you have promised to gather them back from there and to bring them to a place that you have chosen as a dwelling for your name. And then it's like he gets stroppy with God. He goes, God, these are your servants. These are your people. You redeemed them. You have saved them by your great and mighty hand. It's like he's saying, with the greatest respect, Lord, this is for you to fix. This is for you to remedy. This is for you to make right. So that your people can be gathered back to a place that the Lord calls his dwelling so that his people can once again fulfill the call of God on their lives. That, that um, your people, that once again as your people, we can be a, a blessing to those around us and, and bless those in the way that we have received abundant blessing from the Father so that as the people of God, we can once lift up the name, once again lift up the name of God as we see the rule and the reign of the kingdom of God established uh, in our nation. So that as your people who are called by your name, that we will once again proclaim uh, the good news to the poor. We will once again bind up the brokenhearted. We will once again proclaim freedom for the prisoners. We will once again see the sick healed. We will see the lost saved. We will see those who are in bondage set free. We will see the widow and the orphan cared for. That we will again proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so, Lord, as we return to you, as we obey your commands, we're asking you, God, to be faithful to your promises. Gather your people back. And little did Nehemiah know, he's praying this prayer so earnestly, he's weeping and fasting before the Lord and mourning and crying days and days on end. And God's basically saying, Nehemiah, I'm listening. Nehemiah, I'm seeing. And God begins this great work of bringing his people back out of exile, out of captivity, and restoring Jerusalem. And, and, and what um, Nehemiah brings into this, uh, into this, in this prayer to God 
in this part of the prayer it is literally like um, a whole series of quotes from the Old Testament, mostly from Deuteronomy. And it's like Nehemiah's praying. It's like he's got the scrolls open. It's like he's got his Bible open next to him. And he's reading the stuff and he's like, ah, oh, look at that. Yes, I'm going to pray it. It's in here. I'm going to pray it. This is God's promise. I've read it. It's in his word. Now I'm going to pray it. I'm going to pray it into being. He, prom- he prays the promises that he finds on the page. He says, God, you have said that these are your people. You have redeemed them. You've saved them. It's your promise that you'll gather them back. Now gather them back. And then in the final section of the prayer in verse 11, Nehemiah says this, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today um, by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And... um, Nehemiah knew that once he had prayed, once he'd committed all these things to the Lord, he knew that he was going to have to get off his cup-bearing backside and do something. Do you see? He knew that that was going to have to happen. And it's fascinating. It was definitely, definitely in that order. It was definitely, it was definitely not just either or. It was definitely both. And it wasn't just either, I'll pray, I'll, I'll do all the praying, and, and, and you do, somebody else can do something. Or, I won't do any praying, I'll just get on with all the stuff and I'll just do it. It's definitely both prayer and action. Nehemiah, famously known, a man of prayer and action. It's both and. And so we come first to God in prayer, but then we ready ourselves to take the steps that the Lord would have us take. And for Nehemiah, his first step was to go and have a chat with the king. And we kind of look at it and he goes, well, he's a cupbearer, so it's probably not a difficult thing for him to do. He's always in the king's presence. He's always around. Um, but although he, um, that's, that's the case, he would never have been expected to make the kind of request that he makes that we'll see in a few weeks next week. Um, he would never have been expected to make the request to leave his position, one. And secondly, he would never have been expected to make the request to leave his position and go back to another kingdom and basically restore the kingdom of another king. So Nehemiah says to the Lord, God, do you know what? It's not just your old promises that I need. It's not your old promises that I'm going to claim and I want you to answer. I need your faithfulness today. Like, I'm not just looking back. I'm looking at right now. I need you right here, right now. God, I'm going to speak to the king today, so I need you today. This is Nehemiah's, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God prayer. I need you to help me, I need you to guide me. And, and somehow Nehemiah manages to keep all these three time frames sort of in front of him and in sight. He, he's looking back on the faithfulness of God, and he's remembering that whilst at the same time he's kind of... Um, looking to God to answer his, to, to, to honor his promises in the here and now, in the right now, in the present. And at the same time, he's also keeping an eye on the future by looking ahead to uh, what God is going to do. That God is going to fulfill his promises and he is going to gather his people back. That God is going to restore the walls of Jerusalem. That God is going to rebuild Jerusalem and establish his kingdom there again. And we get to that bit and we kind of go, well, that would make a great end to the chapter. I mean, that's pretty enough. That's all amazing. Um, But there's this one little sentence which just kind of hangs there. You know, just just sits there. And um, I've always loved it. I don't know why. I've always loved the way 
it just sits at the end of chapter 1. Um, and it sort of feels like it's almost coincidental, this sentence. And the sentence is, I was cupbearer to the king. I was cupbearer to the king. And, um, and I, think it might, I think it means much more than it might seem. You know, originally the function of a cupbearer was to taste and serve the wine to their master, to taste uh, first and foremost that the wine uh, wasn't poisoned, and assuming you got through that stage, uh, to just to check that it was good. Um, and uh, in a case like that of Nehemiah, cupbearer to royalty, cupbearer to the Persian king, was just, this is not an ordinary servant kind of role. This is, um, this is much bigger than that. It, this, the cupbearer to the king was a, like a, a trusted um, advisor, a confidant. It was a very, very close bond between uh, the two. And so in the Persian Empire, the, the cupbearer's office was important. It had influence. It, 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 it actually wielded power and honor and respect. I don't know what I would have done. I don't know how I'd responded if I was Nehemiah. And he's got this great position. You know, maybe I could use it to wield a bit of power. Maybe I could sidle up to the king. And, and for Nehemiah, none of that seems to even figure in his mind. He kind of sets aside all of his privilege and his wealth or whatever it is, his influence, any friends in high places that he's got, his, his security, his provision, his lifestyle, whatever those things. None of that matters to Nehemiah. All he wants to do is he wants to bring glory back to God's house. All he wants to see is that God's people are restored. There's restoration to the city of Jerusalem. That's all that matters to this um, pretty awesome chap. Like, I like Nehemiah, like a lot. Yeah, he's a hero. Okay, so, fantastic. But what, has, what relevance has this two and a half thousand year old story got uh, for us? What, why should any of it matter uh, to us today as we seek the Lord as a church for his plans and purposes for us as individuals and as a church for 2017? How should we be thinking about applying any of this stuff to our lives? I'm going to try and rattle through some things to think about. Um, firstly, what troubles, what troubles us? Is, is this kind of like just the background thing? What troubles us? You know, are we troubled by the state of God's city today? And by God's city, I think the scriptures would infer um, God's gathered people, the church. Um, the parallel for us today would be like Nehemiah. Are we prepared to set aside and to lay aside all kinds of personal um, rights and privileges in, so that we can give ourselves, like Nehemiah gives himself, to restoring broken walls and building and establishing a strong city for God, a great church that brings God's blessing to every person that we encounter near local and far. To actually believe that God's people together can make a difference to the world in which we find ourselves and that we can bring glory to God by doing so. So as we reflect on Nehemiah chapter 1 this week, as we will all do, uh, conscientiously and attentively, um, here are just some things that we might consider as we work out how to apply it for our lives. First of all, um, let's open our hearts this week and let's allow our hearts to be troubled by what troubles God. Okay? Um, Two and a half thousand years have gone by since Nehemiah was pouring wine for the king of Persia. 
that essentially nothing's changed. The landscape is, as I said at the beginning, the landscape is so similar, terrifyingly similar. There are so many things standing in the way of Nehemiah doing the stuff of the kingdom of God. He's got all of this comfort. He's got all of this privilege, all of his provision, all the soft edges of his comfortable life. And all of those things could have prevented him from getting stuck in and taking action for God. And yet, when the time comes, he can't stop himself from being troubled by the state of Jerusalem. Even though it was like 140 years ago that that all this happened. It's like being troubled by something that happened in 1877? Some time ago. It's like something happened in 1877 and you're going, oh my gosh, it really bothers me. I'm weeping before the Lord and mourning before the Lord. I've got to cry out, God, fix it. What happened in 1877? No idea. What matters to us? What's troubling our hearts? both individually and corporately. What's troubling us as a church that's compelling us and driving us instinctively um, to, to instinctive and desperate, authentic prayer, both day and night with weeping and fasting and mourning, where we are crying out to God saying, God, please remember your promises. Don't leave us like this. God, you've promised. What troubles us? I imagine for um, many of us, if you're anything like me, um, The startling thing is that when we ask ourselves that question, nothing really springs to mind. And if that's the case, um, that might just be an indicator that we are much more Persian than we thought. You know, it may just mean that we might have just settled here a little well. And that we might just be quite used to living in the culture in which we find ourselves. And it's like, you know, it's not too bad after all. It's not too bad. And in the process, we may have forgotten um, who we really are. We may have forgotten where we're really from, and we may have forgotten where we're really going. So the first thing is what really troubles us. The second thing is this week, let's remember who God is. Let's remember what God has said, and let's remember what God has promised to do. Because what we see isn't always the whole story. Um, Jesus made some big promises about himself. He, Jesus said, all those the Father gives to me will come to me. And what that means is that literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon millions of people are going to give their lives to Jesus and are going to give themselves to following and serving Jesus and getting to know him. Jesus came to save the entire world. Seven billion people to date. He came to save the whole kit and caboodle, not just a little few over here and a little few over there. And as we begin to recognize who God is and what God has said and what God has promised to do, it's amazing how it starts to actually help us answer the first question of what troubles us. Because as we remember who God is and what God has said and what God has promised to do, we suddenly get troubled again because we remember that those things aren't happening. And we kind of wake up out of our fog and our fog. Something that troubles me is that we're not seeing scores of people giving their lives to Jesus and saying yes to Jesus. And it's like, I want to follow Jesus. 
Something that bothers me is that we're not seeing scores of people who are saying, I've given my life to Jesus and I'm now following Jesus and my life has been transformed and it's also different. I feel like a new creation. My goodness, how on earth did I survive life without knowing Jesus? I want to get baptized. I want to, get, I want to just get under the water and let my old self die and this public declaration of faith that says, I no longer live, it's Christ who lives in me. And it's so easy, I get it, it's so easy in the business and the comfort of our lives to say, well, you know, um, maybe one day. But it, it, it should trouble us. It troubles me because it's, it's the same gospel. It's the same Jesus Christ. It's the same resurrection. It's all the same. It's the same gospel. It's the same Jesus. It's the same resurrection that caused me to turn my life upside down at 16. And stop walking that way and start walking that way, following Jesus and ending up here. <laughs> it's just a different context. It's a different, a different year. Uh, the third thing that, uh, for us to do this week um, as a church, um, not just for this week, but it's, we've got to seek God. We have to seek God. I talked about the importance of prayer uh, for us as a church last week. Um, remember what I said, Spurgeon said, um, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. Um, there are a whole host of prayer meetings going on across the life of this church. And the truth is, every single one of us who considers ourselves a member of this church should be signed up to at least one of them. There. Said it. Mike Lister <laughs> prays at the moment on his own on a Monday morning in Wimbledon. Um, Kate prays uh, with a bunch of people on Tuesday in Putney. Katie Dusting prays on a Tuesday morning in New Malden and has done for 150 years. Um, uh, Kate, Kate and Kim Plummer are, are praying, looking at the scriptures on a Wednesday morning. Robert and Camilla have started this fantastic uh, prayer meeting on a Thursday night in uh, Battersea, praying for uh, the global community, praying for our local communities. A week today in the evening, next Sunday, 29th in the evening, there's a worship and prayer event at the Ritz in Putney. And um, every single Sunday morning, week in, week out, there is a prayer meeting here. There has been a prayer meeting before the church service for like as long as, like 30 years as far as I can tell. Uh, meets every morning, 9.15, just in the drum hall, just down there. So if you can't make any of the other prayer meetings during the week, just come to church early. Come to church at 9.15, right? And pray. And if you can't make those or you can't make that, then start a prayer group, right? Gather together with two or three others. Let us know what you're doing so that we can celebrate what you're doing and communicate with you about the things that we feel like the Lord is laying on our hearts. Let's gather together as his people and pray. Nehemiah wouldn't have made it if he wasn't first and foremost a man of prayer. We will not make it if we are not first and foremost people of prayer. Christianity isn't some magic formula whereby, you know, just turning up here on a Sunday and, and pitching up to house group is going to automatically guarantee a certain set of outcomes. It just doesn't work like that. I guarantee you, though, that 2017 will look very, very different for us and for the people around us, and for the people in this world, if we as a church and as individuals commit ourselves to praying. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, prayer is beyond question, beyond any question, 
the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with his God. See, I've got to finish. Um, We need to understand that seeing the kingdom of God extended to everyone in every way, which is actually what we all long for. It's what we're all made for. It's what is deep and hardwired in us. And once we kind of scrape off the, 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 the clunk and the gunk of the culture and the environment in which we find ourselves, it's the thing that fires our rockets and stirs our hearts and gets our hearts racing because we step into the reality and the truth about who it is that God has called us to be. But we've got to recognize that the extension of the kingdom of God, the establishment of the rule and the reign of the kingdom of God, it only comes about through spiritual ways, empowered by the spirit of God. Um, We are wanting to see our communities and our city transformed. We are wanting to see London come to know Jesus. We are wanting our nation to turn to Jesus. When we look at what's on the news, if ever any of us thought that there was another solution or another way, we'd be deluding ourselves. We look at the news and we go, oh, Jesus, please come back soon. We want our world to see him properly as he's supposed to be seen and to fall in love with Jesus. And there aren't just practical um, solutions that are going to make all of that stuff happen. It's not just about a practical fix. Of course, there are practical things that we can do and that we do do to uh, facilitate some of that. You know, like, uh, I don't know, like giving away our money. You know, we, as a church, we give away our money to organizations like Tear Fund or Unseen or whoever it is the Lord puts on our hearts and um, we want to bless them and support them in the work that they're doing. But primarily, our job as the church, the purpose of this church is spiritual. That's what we're about. It's a spiritual thing in that we want to demonstrate the love of God And the goodness of God to a world so desperately in need of him. As we said last week, you know, why do we do any of the things that we do here? Why do we do any of it? Last week we were talking about obedience. You know, so much about what we do is about obedience to the Lord. Because you say so, I will. Um, But in everything that we do, even as our love spills out and spills over into something practical, we must never forget that our motive is spiritual. Our love may be practical, but our motives are spiritual. And so our love for people overflows in a practical way, um, and we give up our Tuesday afternoon and we go and serve at the job club. Fantastic. But our motive for doing the job club in the first place, the reason that we do it is spiritual. The reason that we do it is because, as someone once said, we're wanting to see a little piece of heaven on earth. That's why we do it. It's to see the kingdom of God extended to the lives of all the people that come there. Why do we spend time at the yard serving people at food banks, people we've never met? Well, partly it's because we're being obedient to the Lord and the Spirit of God has come to us and he has said, um, I want you to get involved. And we've responded by saying, well, because you say so, I will. And the love that we have overflows into something practical by giving food to those in need. But the reason that we do it all is spiritual. It's to show, albeit by the smallest token, something of the love of God for the last, the least, the lost, for those desperately in need of an encounter with the living God. Of course, we want to be helpful. But in everything we do, we also want to be saying, there is a God who loves you. There is a God who is for you. There is a God who gave 
himself up for you. And you can connect with him through the person of Jesus Christ. So yes, our love is practical, but our motive, our compulsion is spiritual. And we're not going to apologize for that, nor should we apologize for that. Uh, It's who we are as the church. It's the very reason that the church is the hope for the world. Because fundamentally, the problems that we are um, all facing are spiritual. The problems that we're all facing, the people that we know are facing, it's about... Um, it's rooted in broken relationships, broken relationship with God, broken relationship with ourselves, broken relationship with others, and broken relationship with the world in which we live. And we want to bring restoration to those things that are broken. And the solution to those broken relationships is first and foremost a spiritual one for our nation, for our city, for our streets, for our neighbors, for our friends, for ourselves. I am finishing honestly. You may be here this morning, you're not a Christian. And you're kind of, you don't know how you got here, someone dragged you. Um, but you may be here and you're trying to weigh up this whole Christianity thing, and it's like, you know, is this for me? Is this kosher? Is this credible? Um, should I be pursuing it further? Uh, yes. If that's you, yes, 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 yes. Continue pushing in. Continue pressing on. Discover all that you can about the wonderful person of Jesus. And we will do, we would love to do anything and everything we possibly can to help you as you try to encounter him. Uh, Jesus said that he is the way to the Father. And we come home to the Father that we are all so desperately longing to encounter. Uh, We come home to him through Jesus. So as we begin 2017, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah. We're going to be finding out how God answered his prayer. So this week, Let's press into the Lord. Let's allow our hearts to be troubled by the things that trouble God. Let's remember who God is, who he is, who God is, what he said, and uh, what he has promised to do. Let's uh, do it all first and foremost uh, by seeking the Lord in prayer. As together we speak, the spiritual, seek the spiritual breakthrough that we are longing for in the kingdom of God extended to everyone.